please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. And just as a reminder, I know phones are an easy way to use the scriptures, to access the scriptures. I'm not, I'm not angry about you using your phones for scripture, but I would much prefer that you use a Bible with pages. Your own Bible, preferably, that you can mark in. And that's probably because I'm old and biased, but there you go. Turn in your Bibles, be it on your phone or in, your, in the good book that you brought with you this morning to 1 John chapter 2. Our scripture portion are the first two verses of 1 John chapter 2. This is God's eternal word. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So far in God's word, let us pray. Father, thank you for the Holy Scriptures, and thank you even in this passage we have a reminder of why it is written down that we might not sin. So help the preacher this morning and help us all as hearers to, to hear your word, your written word, and your word explained to your people. And Lord, if there's someone here who has not yet believed, I pray that this morning's message would be the first day of them experiencing eternal life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we had a regular concentration of birthdays in the Henry household this week. My youngest daughter turned 18, which means Polly and I are officially the parents of adults. Sort of. I mean, they're getting there. And, not just in our immediate family, two of our grandchildren had a combined birthday celebration yesterday, Eliana's fourth birthday is this upcoming week, and Susanna's birthday is today, aujourd'hui. So happy birthday, Susie. Now, we did a real South Jersey thing yesterday, my wife and I. We, we didn't grow up here. We had both families, both grandparents, a collection of aunts and uncles. We all gathered for kind of a uh, several hours birthday celebration. Decorations had been hung by my daughter at her house. I even played a part. I decorated the ice cream cone cupcakes with frosting. And no, I don't have an Instagram page, but my wife said I did a better job than she did. So how's that, guys? And the party was a wonderful time. But the problem with birthday parties, at least in American society, and this is something, by the way, that I think Susie's and Ellie's parents are well aware of. They tend to be selfish, self-centered affairs. And if you think about it, there's nothing particularly special about counting a solar year's worth of days and then throwing a party after 365 of them have transited the sky. Lavishing presents on a two-year-old or a four-year-old or an 18-year-old just because they happen to have survived another year 
doesn't make a whole lot of biblical sense, especially for Christians who say that the first birth, our human birth, when we come out of our mothers the first time, is nothing by comparison to the eternal birth that we receive from the Father through Jesus. So, in honor of my granddaughter, Susanna Jane Lynn, and her second birthday, I'm offering to her and her parents and to all of you four precious gifts from the Father for poor sinners in Jesus Christ. That's my sermon title, Four Gifts from the Father for Poor Sinners. The first gift, our text refers to Jesus as an advocate with the Father. You can see it there in verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If you have a paper Bible and you want to underline that word, there are two ways that the underlying Greek word here, advocate, which is paraclete, can be understood that are important as we think about these first two gifts. Advocate can mean, first of all, that Jesus is your intercessor. An intercessor is one who pleads on behalf of a guilty person. Actually, without having planned it, Jeremiah, our worship leader this, mor- this morning, has selected several songs that highlight the intercessory power and capacity of Jesus Christ as our advocate. And we need an advocate. We need an intercessor. Two weeks ago, I preached on God is light, and last week, Pastor Jonathan Hatt did an excellent job of putting before you the essential quality of Jesus' pleading because you are sinners. Here's how Spurgeon puts it in a great devotional I'd recommend to you, morning and evening. Spurgeon says this, Righteousness is not only Jesus Christ's character, but it is also his intercessory plea. Take a look again at our text. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Spurgeon is connecting the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous, with his intercessory work. He continues and he says, He meets the charge of unrighteousness against me by pleading before God that he is righteous. Yes, Father, I know Phil is a sinner, a filthy sinner. He doesn't deserve to stand in your presence, but I am his Savior, and I am Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what he's saying. Spurgeon continues, he declares himself my substitute and puts his obedience to my account. My soul, Spurgeon says, you have a a friend well fitted to be your advocate. He cannot but succeed, you may leave yourself entirely in his care. He is an intercessor. What a promise. But I think we need to be reminded in order to appreciate this wonderful gift, this first gift of Jesus' intercession for poor sinners, we need to be reminded of why it is so important First, mankind is made to glorify God, but we do not. The Bible says that all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. So God's wrath, secondly, is based on his truth. It's not a popular teaching, but the anger of God, the wrath of God is not an emotion that bubbles up when he's upset. 
the wrath of God is directly and permanently linked to the truth of God. And God is the definition of truth. His wrath is the only possible response to the violation of his truth. If God's wrath were to cease, he would cease to be God. So his wrath is linked to his truth. And the third basic reminder about why we need an intercessor is that the punishment must fit the crime. If you've deviated even an inch, even a millimeter, even a a micrometer from the truth of God in any way, in thought, word, and deed, the punishment must fit the crime. And since the crime is against an infinitely holy God, the consequence requires an infinite punishment. What Jesus describes being sent to a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's why we need an intercessor. When we think about him as an intercessor, what we're saying is because of Jesus, we have a righteous man who is pleading before a holy God. I heard this week that J.I. Packer called Jesus a representative sinner before God. Now think about that. Jesus is a representative sinner before God. This truth is unpacked in one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Romans 8, 3, and 4. I'd commend it to you for your study this afternoon, but in, in brief, what Paul says in Romans 8, 3, and 4 is that God has sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Meaning that Jesus has taken to himself a human nature like ours, but without sin. He had a true human nature, but not spoiled by our sin. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he fulfills the righteous requirements of the law that sin is punished. Through Christ, our representative, I should say, but sinless sinner. So the gift to sinners in Jesus Christ, the first gift, is that he is a righteous intercessor. And I'd like to pause and see how we can apply this to our own lives this morning. I wonder what you're struggling with this morning if I were to ask you, what's the most recent sin you can remember? Some of you, it was like 15 seconds ago. Well, Jesus' intercession has already addressed that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are so united to his holy ascended person, God the Son with human flesh at the throne of God, that he pleads for you. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God through Jesus Christ, our intercessor. Jesus' intercession, you see, doesn't hang on your performance. It hangs on his. He has fully accomplished all the will of God as to a righteous life. That's why he is a righteous intercessor. But he is also a righteous substitute for you. He has absorbed or carried the wrath of God that you deserve. And according to Hebrews 4, he sits upon a throne of grace. So you don't need any other quality or qualification in order to speak to Almighty God other than knowing that Jesus Christ is your intercessor and you may freely come to him. And I think a second application is if Jesus is interceding for us, then we also may powerfully, through Christ, may powerfully intercede for one another. And this is a lesson, I think, that Mercy Hill needs to hear. 
We need to be better at praying for one another. And the only way we do that is by laying hold of Christ in faith. A real test of our fellowship, if we are a true church, a serious church, then we are going to be a praying church. Now, you can just start with me because I'm an easy target. I need it. Pray for your pastor every day. And Rick and Carol, by the way, remind me, they pray for me every single day. I'm like, really? Yes, I need it. Do you pray for your pastor every day? Yes, this is a selfish comment. I am asking for your prayers. In fact, I called my friend, Pastor Don, yesterday and said, Don, I'm struggling. And he says, Phil, he actually, I left a voicemail. He called me back about an hour later. I didn't want to pick it up because you don't want to pick up the phone when you're struggling. I picked it up because I knew what he was going to tell me. And I picked it up anyway, and he told me. And he says, Phil, I know I've told you this before, but sometimes as pastors we get the Elijah syndrome. You know, I'm the only one, Lord. But what did God tell Elijah? He says, I got 7,000 more just like you. Don't feel that way. So Don's point was, the good news is 7,000 times better than I think it is right now. And what did Don do before we hung up the phone? He prayed for me through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. He interceded for me. And if Jesus is interceding for us, and if we are in fellowship with Christ, then we must intercede for one another. We need to grow as a praying church. The second gift for sinners from Jesus Christ is not only is he a righteous intercessor, this word advocate, which the underlying Greek word paraclete, it can be applied in another direction. It's a second gift. So not only does advocate or paraclete mean that he prays for us, he's interceding for us, I'm calling that a Godward movement, a Godward gift, but there's a gift in this word advocate or paraclete that turns towards our enemies. He defends us. The paraclete, the advocate Jesus, is our defender. This is the second gift. He not only pleads before the Father, but he defends you and me from all of his and our enemies, as the catechism puts it. He is our champion. He is our David for our Goliaths. And we're the ones, the rest of Jesse's sons, trembling in the camp, afraid of that giant, and Jesus throws off the king's armor and goes in with the word and spirit and slays all his and our enemies. He's our advocate. He defends us when we're alone because he will never leave us or forsake us, Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. He defends us from disaster. Not one hair of your head shall fall to the ground without the will of my Father in heaven, Luke chapter 21. He even defends us from death because he's entered death ahead of us that we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. And 
from the enemy himself, like he defended Job, he defends us from our adversary and our accuser, the father of lies, Satan himself. Satan tempts us to think that we're not worthy. Satan tempts us to think that we cannot be forgiven. Satan tempts us to think that we're not doing enough. Satan tempts us to think that we stand on our own merits. And we say, no, no, no. My Savior has defended me. He is before the Father, pleading, my paraclete, my advocate, and my champion. Do you know that even when you sin, that Jesus cannot and will not forsake you? Scripture says, he would sooner deny himself than he would deny you, the one for whom he shed his precious blood. John Bunyan describes it this way, sin is still in us and with us and mixes itself with whatever we do. And the devil, our night and day adversary, that's Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the devil never ceases to tell our bad deeds to our Father, urging that we might be forever disinherited for this. But what should we do now if we had not an advocate? Yes, if we had not one who would plead. Yes, if we had not one that could prevail and that would faithfully execute this office for us. Well, Bunyan says, we would die. But since we are rescued by him, let us as to ourselves lay a hand on our mouth and be silent. There is nothing you can say that can add to your champion's defense. It is finished. It is final. And it is perfect. You need not defend yourself because Jesus is the best defender you could ever have. So how do we apply this gift of sinners to our own lives? Well, if Jesus is your righteous defender... Why are we so insecure? Every little critique, every little insult, every little, just even somebody can look at us wrong and we're like, oh, that hurt. And you, you react, you respond, you withdraw, you run away. At least I do. We do not have to prove ourselves because Jesus is our champion. He backs us. He stands behind us. He is underneath us. He's the foundation for our, for our lives. He's the goal towards which we're headed. We can take it. You can take those insults from other Christians. You can take being wronged. You can, you can return, instead of uh, rude resentment response, you can return love because of Christ. If Jesus is our defender, we need to realize that championship more in our experience with one another and with the unbelieving world around us. And then I've already alluded to this, but when you're facing temptation, I mean, I called Pastor Don last night. I mean, I wasn't about to like, you know, kill myself or do anything drastic. I was just struggling. And so what did I do? I phoned a friend. This is what our men's Samson group is about or what it should be about. This isn't just guys getting together to, to talk. It's guys supporting one another in our hour of need. And so I called my friend. 
I didn't face temptation on my own strength. Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. But the Lord said to Satan, not I rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you. And that idea is mirrored again in the little epistle of Jude. Don't face temptation on your own. Send Jesus to the door to answer the big bad wolf as he's banging and breathing and fuming and accusing you as he is wont to do. We're looking this morning at four gifts to poor sinners from the Father. The first two are related to verse 1, which is the advocate role. He's your righteous intercessor, and he's your righteous defender. The next two gifts are from verse 2 of our text. He is the propitiation for our sins. I had to practice that. I want you to give me a hand here. Let's say this word together. Propitiation. One more time, just to get comfortable with it. Propitiation. You're sounding like theologians already. That's good. What is this word? Propitiation. I can hardly pronounce it. Well, you're not the only one. I looked up five different Bible versions, and they all translate this differently. Check it out. The CSB. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's a little easier to pronounce. The NCV. He died in our place to take away our sins. Not bad. The Phillips paraphrase or translation, the one who made personal atonement for our sins. I like that. The Geneva translation, he's the reconciliation for our sins. Yes, Calvin, go. And then I love this, the beautiful uh, paraphrase by the late Ken Taylor in the Living Bible. Listen to this. He is the one who took God's wrath against our sins upon himself and brought us into fellowship with God. And he's the forgiveness of our sins. He nailed it there. With a variety of these translations or paraphrases, the word propitiation is a very, very rich term. It's very rich indeed. The two aspects for the two final gifts that I want to bring out, though, about this word are negative and positive. The first is that Jesus is your purifier. Propitiation means that he's the one who cleanses you of all that defiles and makes you filthy in God's sight from a sin perspective. Our text puts it this way. He is the propitiation for our sins. So the, the, the ugliness, the dirtiness, the filthiness of sin is addressed by the fact that he propitiates them. He takes them away. You see this all through the scriptures. It would be an entire hour-long Bible study just on this one if we were to really dive into it. But I'm going to take you to one place in the scripture in the Old Testament. If you could turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. And it's famous for its concentration on the holiness of God as regards all the sacrifices in the Old Covenant. 
And Leviticus 16 zeroes in on something called the Day of Atonement. Maybe you've heard of this before. We're going to pick up the reading at verse 11. The Day of Atonement is being described, and Aaron, the priest, is being described. And we come to verse 11 of Leviticus 16. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. Well, I've encouraged you to do a little deeper study this afternoon on Romans 8, 3, and 4. I will add Leviticus 16 to the list. It's an incredible chapter, incredibly vivid in its details. But this word mercy seat and the word atonement speak to the cleansing power of the blood as operating in the sovereign hand of God. And in our passage, it climaxes in the verse I ended with, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people, because of their transgressions. We heard from Pastor Jonathan last week, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, what? Cleanses us of our sins. In verse 9, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But it's in the rest of the New Testament as well. From Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.5, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You're freed from your sins because of his propitiation. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 1 Peter 1, 17 and 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then Hebrews is filled with propitiation language because it explains why we don't offer sacrifices anymore. Hebrews chapter 9, 13 and 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9. 13 and 14. So propitiation means that you are clean. 
You are free. You are pure, no matter what your past is. No matter what your present is. No matter what you think your future is. The propitiation of Christ cleanses you. That's the negative. But finally, the fourth gift, propitiation has another meaning. It has a positive meaning. Cleansing is negative. It's taking something away. You can can picture the wheelbarrows in, in in the house, which is my life. The wheelbarrows of sin are just being carted out the back door, one after the other, filling up a whole dumpster. And they have to empty that thing and bring it back. This is a total reno that's going on here. That's negative. The positive is this. Propitiation means that Jesus is your God-pleaser. He's your God-pleaser. He's the one that brings the smile of the Father and gives it to you. He brings the pleasure of God. I was reading um, John Piper's great book. It's called The Pleasures of God in preparation for my sermon this morning. God is pleased with you because Jesus has propitiated positively. He's turned aside the wrath and acquired God's pleasure. Do you remember what the Father said when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan? There was a, the heavens were opened and the, the Holy Spirit in some form like a dove or a bird descends upon him and then a voice. Remember the voice? The voice. What did it say? This is my beloved son. I am so proud of him. I am so pleased with him. Jesus is your propitiation because he has acquired the pleasure of God. And God looks at you and all of your sin and all he sees. He's beaming from ear to ear. And he says, my son, my daughter, I am so proud of you. I am so pleased. The underlying word for propitiation is interesting. It's hilasmas. And we get our English word hilarious from this. So, Without meaning to be irreverent, God is hilariously pleased with you because Jesus is the hilasmos. He is the propitiation of God. And the pleasure of God for his elect is the one consistent theme in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Here's two or three brief verses. Deuteronomy 32.10. Was Israel pleasing to God? No, but God decided to be pleased with them. There was nothing in Israel that was pleasing to God, but God, because he is a merciful, propitiating God, because he is filled with love and mercy, he he chose Israel and he decided to be pleased with them. He found them in a howling waste of wilderness. He encircled them. He cared for them. He guarded them as the pupil of his eye. That's how pleased he was with Israel, and he is with us who have been grafted in. I love Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. 
He will exult with you with loud singing. I mean, if, if, if God is dancing a jig, he's dancing a jig because you are his child. And the only thing that brings the pleasure of God is Jesus, the righteous propitiator. And I don't have time, but it's another assignment for this afternoon. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. His anger has been turned away. I will rejoice and draw water from the wells of salvation because he is no longer angry with me. That's what Isaiah says. And by the way, 12 follows 11. And some of you know how precious Isaiah 11 is. How do we apply this final gift to our lives this morning? I'm afraid that some of us are not taking pleasure in God. We haven't got the memo. We're stuck living a kind of religious treadmill where we're going through the motions and particularly covenant children struggle with this. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, you're thinking, a teenager, what am I doing? I'm just doing my parents' thing. Don't you know, children, that God is pleased with you, that he loves you? And I know it's difficult being the child of your parents. I've seen them. I am one of them. But he's pleased. Are you taking pleasure in God? Our catechism begins by asking you or challenging you to make your life's ambition to enjoy God. Some of you are falling short of that. uh, My friends would say, you're just mailing it in. In particular, and it's February now, so New Year's resolutions are all out the door, right? You need to learn to delight in the word of the Lord. And that starts with Believe it or not, it starts with Sunday morning, making church a priority. So I commend you for doing that. But you can't just read or hear Scripture on Sunday. The preaching on Sunday is to set the pace, and I'm trying to do that this morning for you. It's to set the pace for your Bible reading as families and individuals the whole week. Listen, Psalm 1-2. When you delight in God's Word, you avoid evil. Blessed is the man who does not, who does not, who does not, it says, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. I was visiting with the brother and his sister this week, and the brother says he listens to sermons in his work day. And as long as I approve of the sermon, I approve of that. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Listening and reading God's word confirms our calling. Quote, your words were found and I ate them, Jeremiah says, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And Psalm 119 is just, the whole thing is amazing in this regard, but verse 92, enduring trials and troubles through the scriptures. Some of you are so weak and flighty and, and thin and short in your endurance because you're not in the scriptures 
And verse 92 of Psalm 119 says, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. Corollary being, I'm dying in my affliction. I'm drowning under the weight of this burden in this trial because I'm not delighting in the word. But it's not just an an ought, an obligation. It's because God delights in you that you can't wait to get into his word to read about his love for you. That's where I'm trying to stress this morning. Well, I need to close, and I began by sharing about several birthdays this week. I've noted the American birthday tradition. I'm not sure how it is in other countries, but at least in America, our birthday tradition comes with significant spiritual dangers. Unless you take specific steps, I'll call them take pains, to incorporate a Christ-centered element into our birthdays. Like prayer, for instance, intercessory prayer for the, the special kid. Reflecting on God's providence over the last solar year. Noting or remarking, in addition to human birthdays, other important milestones in your children's lives, like their baptism, like the day that they profess faith, their first Holy Communion, when they come and profess faith before the church, or if a child has gone astray, the day that they came back, their homecoming day. But let's not forget, Sunday is a way to celebrate birthdays. Because Sunday, if it's anything, is the day that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore the weekly remembrance of every single believer's birthday, the Lord's Day. Sunday is an ongoing weekly renewal like a birthday in which we seek by God's grace to live spirit-filled, spirit-sent, intentional kingdom lives for the glory of God. That's what Sunday is. And so you can encourage a Christian family by bringing your kids to church on Sunday and encouraging them to grow in their love for the Lord in that way. I want to close with with this. I have three or four hymns here, each one which highlight these four gifts. For instance, Christ our intercessor. How many hymns that we sing, including some of the ones we've already sung this morning, emphasize the intercession of Christ? This is Arise, My Soul, Arise. Just listen to Charles Wesley's words here. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead, his blood atoned for every race, his blood atoned for every race, and sprinkles now the throne of grace. That's Leviticus 16 in a hymn. Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. 
Do not let this ransomed sinner die. Amazing. Maybe the greatest hymn writer in English ever. I won't go through it, but Christ our defender, the second gift, a mighty fortress is our God. Great hymn by Luther. Christ our purifier, we're going to sing it in just a minute. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood. What? Lose all their guilty stains. Say it again. Lose all their guilty stains. Sinners plunged beneath that flood are cleansed. They are purified. And what about him being a God-pleaser? We already sang about it before the throne of God above. Here's another one, a favorite, a favorite of this church in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Do you know that some churches have removed this song from their hymnal because they hate the wrath of God? We're going to sing it. We're going to sing it. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Happy birthday, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great gifts from Jesus Christ to poor sinners, that he is our intercessor, and that the power of this prayer, even right now, that's coming from my mouth, is lifeless apart from his active moment by moment ongoing intercession so God may your people not just tune out as I'm praying may they pray for me as I pray for them and may we be a body of interceding people thank you that you are a defender please restore the confidence that we need and banish all of our awkwardness and embarrassment Thank you that he is the expiator, the purifier. Cleanse us, Lord, of our guilty consciences. And thank you that we can rest in the good pleasure of God because Jesus has propitiated his wrath. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.